Pete, the first chapter of your book, Transitions, A Director's Journey and Motivational Handbook, starts with how to quit. Mm. So what is this and why is that important <laughs> to start the book? So, you know, the one of the things that I wanted to keep in mind with the book was that I don't want to be prescriptive in, in saying this is the way you have to do it. And I also didn't want to be... Um, overwhelming to the reader in a sense of like, you gotta figure out, you've gotta know what you wanna do. Every you know nook and cranny of your career needs to, needs to be decided and then just attack it. Cause I know that it can take people various amounts of time to figure out what their, what their voice might be, what their sensibility might be, um, what their appetite for whatever different position you might seek in the industry um, requires of you. And so I wanted to, in the beginning, um, speak about curiosity and how much of a of a benefit or a plus it is to have that. Because um, if you're not curious, I think you, you start to become uh, a little too cemented in what you think works and does not work, and it's constantly evolving. Um, and in route to figuring out what you want to do specifically, you're gonna have to quit. And so I wanted to hopefully present that to the reader in a way that it's not a derogatory word to quit. Um, in fact, when you choose to quit, it's an empowering thing. So if you are walking down a road of, let's say you're, you're editing and you're like, oh, uh, editing's not for me, um, and you pivot from editing to writing or editing to producing, that, that quitting can be a positive thing. So it's kind of my opportunity to rebrand uh, the energy around the word quitting. And is there quitting with finesse and quitting with burning your bridges? Mm, that's a great question. I, I think that um, you can definitely quit with finesse. Um, uh, I think when it's clear what your goals are, then, you know, I, I think I maybe found the right word or another word for it, which is a pivot. I think a, I think quitting can be just a pivot, um, but I also think you can burn, you can end up burning bridges if you do it, uh, if you don't dismount gracefully, you know what I mean? So I think um, the idea is to not burn any bridges because you never know when you're going to run into people again. Um, and I think a lot of what we do in the industry is built upon relationships. So. Um, burning them down is probably not going to be in your favor. But sometimes that can be hard not to. Right, because I'm thinking if, if let's suppose there's personality differences, but it's better to, as I like how you say it, dismount gracefully, um, that might be difficult. And especially if there's an ego at the top. And so mm. egos at the top tend to know each other and could make phone calls. So yeah, just how you dismount and making sure no one's, Pride is hurt. Mm -hmm. That's a difficult thing in any industry, I would imagine. Yeah, it is. I feel like, you know, another thing that I've, I've come to try and add to my process is like certain relationships are going to be, and by I'm, I'm speaking more specifically to like um, positions on a crew are going to be contentious by virtue of the fact of, of what each position is empowered to do. Right, so like an easy example is like a cinematographer wants more 
you know, equipment to beautifully capture the show. And a producer is wanting to get the best look <laughs> for the least amount of money. And so if we if these two parties know that, then they can already accept that it's going to be a lot of no's and a lot of whys and a lot of, you know, uh, seemingly contentious exchanges. But if you know it's going to be like that, you can get past that and kind of just have the conversation you need to or maybe find a way to embrace it with humor because we're all just doing what we I, hopefully, you know, we're all just doing what the job requires of us. Like if I if I want another take at, at a scene, hopefully the actors know that I'm not doing it, you know, for um, any reason other than I'm trying to get the best out of this moment, you know. Um, but then on the flip, if an actor feels like they don't have another take to give and, and they think that we've got it and... You know, it seems like they're really not willing to do another one. You know, what I have to make a decision on my end, too. And so it's always this kind of frequent navigation of the interpersonal dynamics that you have to find finesse in. And I think maybe as people get older, they realize, okay, I need to do the two weeks notice or even a month or, you know, have the talk and let them know, you know, I'm, I'm going to be leaving. But I think when we're younger, and I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience, there are times when you just go, okay, cool, it's lunchtime, I won't be coming back. And, and you think that, okay, I'm 21, it's not going to matter. Right. But maybe just, you know, don't take that interning job. It's not something I probably could have taken at mm. that age, but if you can't stay with it you know and and you know a lot of times the the jobs we come across that we don't enjoy oftentimes like they're periods in, of time right like like it might be a three-month commitment or it's the duration of this film you know sometimes it's can you get through it is there anything else you can learn outside of you know the thing that you'd rather not be dealing with um you know, can you learn the inner workings of how a film is produced while being in that office that has a few people that aren't your type of people? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, can you can you find the the, the value to take away from it? Um, a lot of times, it's reconfiguring your perspective to get something guaranteed to propel you forward. And did anyone question you about that uh, chapter or did people praise you like, well, that's mm. great. That's a great way to start a book about. Yeah, having a I, I think people I think there's a sense of relief and I hope there's a sense of relief, you know, for people who read it and they're like, OK, yeah, that's uh, I can. I don't I'm not about to read a book that's going to tell me, you know, here's what you need to do and blah, blah, blah. blah. It's going to help me find uh, help me develop some tools uh, through which to employ as I move toward finding my path. So the response has been great. I think it sets the tone that it's going to be more reality-based rather than, um, you know, just, I don't know, all these cliches that you hear for years, but that you know that, okay, stuff is temporary and, you know, it may not always be a fit and that's okay and you may not be able to fix it. Right. You know? Right. So, do you think that there's a time limit on how long to stay with a job? Now I realize it's mm. different because TV directing and, and right. it's, it's short-term projects usually. But yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I guess 
So is there a time limit for how long to stay with a job? You know, I feel like a lot of what happens in, I'm going to take film and TV and try and marry, you know, those the types of jobs that people have. A lot of times they're, they're, they're freelance driven or they're kind of periodic. So they kind of have their own time limits where, you know, if you're on a, if you're editing a film, you know, it's, I don't know why I keep using editing, but if you're editing a film, it's 12 to 18 weeks of your life, you know, and then you can move to the next one. Um, TV show, you know, nine months, maybe fewer. Uh, if you're a producer, you know, that project is going to, project may never go, you know, or it may, it may be a small window in time and then maybe you didn't have a good time on it, but they make a sequel and you back out of it, you know, because uh, you want to have whatever peace of mind you're looking for. So I feel like we have a unique opportunity in this creative space to not be married to anything too long. Um, so you can find a way to withdraw or not continue without having to quit. Um, but, you know, if and when that thing, that situation arises, uh, it's it's really measuring what's the what's the real benefit. I mean, I will say if there's questions of of like mental health, if there's questions of like, you know, it's just an improper situation, then by all means, like talk to the proper people and, and, and withdraw yourself from anything that's, you know, not good for you. Um, but, you know, I think finding being too ideal about how the work experience should be can also leave one, you know, missing out from the benefits that they could take from a particular job. Because I can tell you, like, if I go through the jobs that I've had over, you know, my career, not many of them were awesome, but <laughs> you know what I mean? But a lot, but I, but they're like, I can always go back and say, oh, I learned that thing from that job. And then who knew that four years later, I'd be able to take that thing and, and turn it into something that powered what I was doing. One of my first jobs out of college was, um, you know, working for a company that would kind of soon be overtaken by IMDb. Um, but this was a company that you had to pay for the information that is available for free now. Um, and I had to call, you know, I'd read the trades, Hollywood Reporter, Variety. Um, I'd look at the film markets, MeFed, American Film Market, whatever it was. And I would then call and say, oh, it says that you uh, bought the rights to this book. Is it true? Are you making this movie? What status is it in? When might you begin shooting it? Whatever. And I hated that job, you know, because I probably made 50 to 100 phone calls a day. Um, but when it came time five years later to raise money for my film, my feature, I had built a muscle up of like, I can talk to anybody, you know, because it's just a conversation. Um, until they tell me, no, I don't want to invest in your project, um, I have no problem following up because that's, you know, just kind of this thing that the, the, it was the byproduct of what I had done begrudgingly for two years. That's fascinating. Was that the book that was in Blockbuster? You know, I well, it was it was called Baseline uh, Studio Systems. And I don't know, I think it was all 
they I mean, I imagine they probably had some physical resource that you got, um, but I believe it existed online and then you just subscribed to it and got whatever you got. But that's how that I mean, I dealt with one little process of it. I don't even know what people got on the other end of their of their payment. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. So then you'd had people hang up and and you'd already sort of been, you know, that the hazing of any telemarketer, you probably already yeah, got it's like, that. Oh, okay. okay, that's going to happen. You know, <laughs> <laughs> fine. You know, uh, oh, you don't, you know, because there and then there on the flip, there would be people would be like, I'm calling for my 900th attempt to update this record because after X amount of time, we're going to check to see, like, should we make this a, a, a like a dead record? Or is it active, you know? And so you're calling people and it's like the production company somewhere in North Carolina and it's the same guy you've called eight times and it's like, hey, how you been? And they're telling you a little bit more about the trials and tribulations of, of making the film. And, you know, you're, you're building these relationships in a, in, a, in a weird way. That's fascinating. Wow. And so that, that must have really helped, I'm sure. Yeah, then, you, then you're not scared. Yeah, yeah. Up that phone. And just wrapping up, so it sounds like with most jobs, if I were an HR manager and I looked at a resume with all these different projects, I'd be like, oh, wow, you've you've jumped around a bit. Mm -hmm. But in the film industry, it sounds like that's a, a plus. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, I would, I imagine so. I've been very kind of tunnel driven with, with my career pursuits. But I do know like friends that I've had in advertising, like in the commercial world, it was shared with me that it was almost looked bad if you stayed somewhere longer than two to three years, because then I guess what they were saying is that it looks like you're stagnant or it looks like, um, you know, you're not seeking to try new ideas and, and, and communicate in a different way or you're not well sought after, you know? So there's all these little, each industry kind of has its own um, take on, the activity of a of a resume. Pete, I understand the first movie that you wrote and directed got into Sundance. Yeah, so I mean, I guess it's the first one that I put out to film festivals. Um, the short film I did called 3D. It was my senior thesis film coming out of NYU Film School. So it's kind of like, you know, if you were an undergraduate film and you were like crazy enough to say I'm a director, like this was. Uh, the path. And so um, did a 24 minute short film that I wrote, produced, directed, had to raise $24,000 to make this film. Um, it was a different time because we had to shoot on film. So everything was, uh, it, it, I mean, people who, who have never shot on film have no, <laughs> have no um, budgetary appreciation for what that meant. And um, the example I often use is that uh, we had to do an answer print. So, um, you know, like when you used to develop film uh, photographs, you'd develop and then you get the negative back uh, in the little pouch with the photos, right? Um, and you could continue to develop those that negative again and again if you needed to. And so that's how we were making films. We had the negative, um, but we had a work print. And so we would cut the work print, but save the negative. And then when the work print was finished, we'd cut, well, not us, there'd be a negative cutter with white gloves and glue who would cut the actual negative that ran through the camera, 
and then cemented back together to match the locked picture from the work print. And then that cemented negative that it run through the camera, all the film that it run through the camera now cemented together in the, you know, configuration of the film. That's from, that's the print from which the, that's the film from which the prints get made. And so anyhow, that cost $4,000 for the negative cut. And now you could, I've made shorts for that amount of money, you know? And so um, anyhow, that uh, that film starred Dorian Missick, who uh, was an actor I met uh, during my NYU days and it's gone on to be in the four or five of my projects. Um, starred Carrie Washington right at the beginning of um, her career, fresh out of George Washington. She was graduating the same year I did. Um, Al Thompson, myself, um, and it went to Sundance and about 30 festivals around the world. And so did you actually think that you could get into Sundance? I mean, were you thinking this will just it's a wild card? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the thing. I think over time, what it's nice to know for me, it was nice to know that there were these potential um, outlets for a project, but I never did the projects for those outlets. So it was always enough for me to finish something. Um, that was kind of the point. Um, now, that's not removing the reality that I am aware that these outlets exist but it's like this kind of filmmaker Zen balancing act of like, if I put all my weight on acknowledgement from some outside group, then if I don't get that, well, what is that going to do for me emotionally on this end? You know, will I feel like I failed? Will I feel frustrated? Will I become embittered? You know, so I didn't expect it. I knew it could happen. And when it did happen, I felt like I had achieved something that was pretty difficult. Um, and so I was very happy about that. But that's kind of been, that's been the journey of the whole career. Like, how do you navigate um, what you want <laughs> from what's achievable and what can you guarantee about this work that you do so you don't, you know, find yourself becoming one of those people who are just angry at how the industry has not recognized them for what they think is great work. What was the submission fee at that time? Oh, boy. Um, you know what? I have a pretty good memory. It was probably like $45. And it was probably like, you know, 45 I didn't have, you know. But uh, that was, I mean, that was always part of your budgeting, too. Like, how much are we going to put aside for film festival submissions? Um, but it was either it was either thirty five or forty five dollars. I'm pretty sure. And so no Kickstarter, no Seed and Spark, no Indiegogo at that time. No, no. And how did you raise that? You said twenty four thousand. Twenty four thousand. So I, I raised a portion from someone I had interned with. Um, I raised a portion from my mom, a small portion. I raised a portion from just knocking on doors and you know, hey, remember, remember you put those braces on me, you know. Uh, <laughs> 
well, you look like you might have a little bit of you know money. So uh, it was kind of by hook or crook. You know, I worked, um, and you know, it took it took a long time um, to put it all together. The film kind of sat around for a while until post production money could be raised. Did you go to Sundance with the film? I did. Yeah. Yeah. You did okay. So when you packed up to leave. Sundance, what was your mindset thinking like, okay, now things are really going to change for me? Right. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, that that's the thing, right? You kind of get into this place where you, you like almost everything I've said to you, I could, I could then, you know, shake the etch a sketch and erase it all because you try and temper yourself with this, you know, healthy, um, view of expectations. And then you get into the thing and you're like, okay, maybe this is it now. Um, and so, yeah, I think at that time I was definitely um, hopeful and expectant of certain things to come out of it because I had watched other people have a, have a particular kind of journey after going to Sundance. And then you got back home, and so you're in New York City or New Jersey? Uh, in New Jersey, okay. yeah. yeah. And, and what happened? Um, so get back home. Uh, I get a phone call from uh, Lynn Auerbach, who um, worked at the Sundance Institute. She was interested in seeing if I had a feature or anything, you know, like what was my next project. Luckily, I did. And so I passed that feature script on to her. I had been very strategic because I'm, I'm I often I, I try and temper creativity with being very deliberate. And so I watched a lot of filmmaking friends before me go to Sundance, get a similar call, and not have the next project. And you know, they say, "Oh, we'll reach out when you know you finish that script." But like, if you take eight months to reach out, well, the likelihood that they've reached out to a new batch of people who had a, you know, great film at another film festival is high. And I think you just want to. When that doorbell rings, you want to answer the door, as far as I'm concerned. And so um, I got her that script. It wasn't really, you know, ready or perfect in any way, but it had fade in and fade out and about 113 pages in between. And so um, she read it. Um, she was like, well, I don't think we're going to, I don't think this is going to be the one, but get me another draft. And that was all I needed. So. Um, we did that dance for maybe a year and a half um, before they were like, well, look, we're not going to select the film, but we'll introduce you to a bunch of producers in L.A. and set you up with meetings. And so that was kind of the evolution of that. What did that experience teach you? So the experience of going to Sundance and then coming home and then the phone not ringing like uh, off the hook. Um, well, in the book, I, I talk about uh, after that screening at NYU's film festival um, and, and again, taking a lot of that expectation of certain acknowledgement that I had at Sundance and bringing it back home to, to, to the university, um, we had a film festival that was uh, designed to screen all the work of all the students that finished the project. And so um, they would have a craft award and they would have uh, uh, a, like a Wasserman finalist. So top three undergrad films, top three grad films. 
and um, the film didn't get recognized in any way whatsoever in any of the categories. And I, and it had been advertised though as you know a film to see or look at how how well our slate of films is doing. You know, here are these six films from this year that went to Sundance, including you know 3D, et cetera, et cetera. And so um, after the awards kind of came and went, I had a meeting with the dean at the time, um, or the chair rather, <clears throat> and I was like, well, look, how does this happen? You know, it's kind of crazy to me. This is this is righteous, indignant me uh, at what twenty two years old. You know, it's kind of crazy to me that uh, you're using the film to promote the festival and how well you know the the work is in the festival. But then with these awards, it's like crickets or whatever. And he explained to me that well, in the past we've had a film win Sundance and come back and not be acknowledged in the way we're talking about. So I was like, all right, touche. I, I didn't win, you know, I get it. Um, and my takeaway from all of that was, I can either be upset about this, which it's clearly becoming um, evident that I'd be standing on very unfirm ground with this anger. Um, what I'm taking away from this is that I'd never made, I never took the opportunity to build a network of people who were aware of me, you know, as, um, you know, a student to watch or someone that they had a, have had a more personal relationship with. And so coming out of that, both uh, Sundance and then the NYU Film Festival, I was pretty committed to never having that happen again. And so building a community of folks who would be aware of me and know my story and be clear on where I wanted to go with my career. Um, and that's how I you know, built my production company, Rinse Repeat. I think that's how I got into television directing, uh, which was not just like a, you know, I decided to do it and, and it happened. It was very um, deliberate and took a lot of time and a lot of relationship building. And so much like the phone call job, <laughs> you know, there was this great takeaway from from those two film festival experiences that I think I'm not where I am today had I not gone through them. And so did you actually go on meetings? Did you fly out to L.A.? Oh, yeah. During so that I, time you did? I went out to, L to, I went out to NYU. <laughs> I went out to L.A. in June of 02. Um, and I had, I don't know, maybe 15 meetings set. And, uh, you know. I stumbled my way through these meetings. I did the best I could. I don't, I, looking back, I probably was full of passion, but maybe not, didn't know how to run a good meeting, uh, present myself in like meeting form. And, uh, you know, the takeaway from the trip was, well, it looks like the film is maybe a little too mainstream for what the Sundance Institute was looking to do. And then on the flip, it looks like it's a little too indie for what these more mainstream producers at the time in 2002 are looking to do. And let's just pause and say it's a vastly different landscape for content in 02. It's like you had you had movies made at studios or mini majors, and then you had like two or three indies that fought through and made it out. It was a it was not this kind of 
world where you see all these independent films and you could put them out on whatever platform you want or you could make them for cheap enough that you know you could self-distribute them through your website or something and so um yeah I, I brought that back and said well I'm gonna if it's not gonna work for either of these two demographics or buckets or whatever we want to call then looks like I'm gonna have to raise some money on my own and that was um that was my that became that be that became my focus after that trip. And so, not indie enough for Sundance. Mm -hmm. How does that happen? What? Well, I think I think it all I think it changes with the times. You know, like I think every festival slate, if you look at any festival year to year, there's kind of a theme that happens, just that kind of reflects the times. And I think in two thousand two, um, you know the 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 premise and the execution of the film was not necessarily like leaning toward the types of character exploration that might have been more of the of the day as far as like this is what an indie film is going to do and all and all of these things are like shifting terms you know so that's another thing for like filmmakers to to always remember like these things can shift they, they and blow in the wind they change with with the times i mean i've done tv shows where one year they say we will never hire a first time director um you know when i was in when i was trying to get my first jobs and then two seasons later people i know are getting their first ever episode of tv on the same show and you know things things are free to change but it's like just knowing like it's all so malleable. It's all so, um, you know, nothing is set in stone. So, do you think that if you had been the same age then, now, and gotten into Sundance, that it would be more difficult? Because you talked about building a network. Well, there was mm. no social media right. back then. Yeah, no, no MySpace even. Yet. Right. So, yeah, it was nothing. Right, right. Email Just, was your social network. Right. AOL, uh, AOL. Yeah. You've got mail. Right, right. Right. So do you think it'd be more difficult or do you think it was actually easier then because there were huh. less people trying to do it? That's a great question. Um, do I think it was easier then? You know, I would say it was not easier then. While there may have been, it may have been more difficult to it definitely was more difficult to make something. And now that means there are probably fewer things being made. But conversely, I think because the barriers to entry are lower now and it's kind of been, there's been a democratization to like getting in the game, um, you've got fewer things being made in the past with poor execution <laughs> and then you've got more things being made now but with people who have the opportunity to execute well because it's not like their first thing ever you know what i mean and i remember when i when i saw like friends brothers um like from my year of high school like one friend's brother i'm, I'm thinking specifically was like in middle school and was doing like green screen stuff you know what i mean it's like I hadn't even done it yet. I was like 24, I'd never green screened anything yet. And this kid's in middle school, green screening stuff. 
So you, you, you take that and you just move along the timeline of like now that person's 22 with a short film that the like the possibility for that short film to be so much more well executed than what I was making, I think is high. How many years was it between showing at Sundance mm -hmm. and getting your first television directing job? So I went to Sundance in January of 2001. I booked my first episode of television in April of 2017. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So that would be 16 and a quarter years. But you were active in film and television. You worked at NYU for mm -hmm. a while. Yeah, I mean, that whole time. So to, to anyone, everyone watching and listening, I never stopped being a filmmaker. And I think, you know, that's part of what I try and touch on in the book. Like you're, you have to define yourself. You have to claim what you, what you are and who you are. And so while I, I worked a desk job at NYU, I was assistant production coordinator. I was signing forms for the students to go get film and, you know, uh, rent equipment or here's a voucher to go to Kodak or whatever. I was this, I was the signature toward other younger folks dreams. <laughs> you know, um, I answered a million questions at the window because they would come to our window and, and get this information and I would, you know, give uh, unsolicited advice or you know, it became sought after. People would kind of know that I had a real world skill that I could kind of impart and offer to them. Um, I was, you know, I had my production company during this time. I had a podcast. Um, you know, I was making things. I, I won a competition at Tribeca for heist screenplay that I co-wrote in 2008. Um, I wrote a bunch of screenplays I thought I might sell that I never did. And so all of that time, I was still creating, trying to, I had a, I had a, I had a target on feature filmmaking um, because that was what I had gotten into this game to do, you know. Um, and over time, you know, this landscape was changing. It was the, 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 the types of films that I was kind of interested in making were becoming uh, obsolete because everything was coming from some other intellectual property, like a comic book or an amusement park ride like Pirates of the Caribbean, you know, and like $20 million films, $10 million films were kind of disappearing. And what I was noticing was a lot of the people that I wanted, that I was inspired by that made those films were moving to TV because that's where there was more, uh, there was a, 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 a higher need there. They needed more, they needed more content. Um, and the filmmakers that were kind of sent to the wayside by the new mandate and, and features were going over to TV and saying, well, I'd love to tell that kind of story. And obviously all ushered in by Sopranos in the golden age and watching these interesting characters find exploration episode after episode, season after season. And so um, for, yeah, I think from like 09 until 2017, I had a pretty, pretty 
dedicated focus on trying to get into TV. Um, but it took some time before I was able to kind of put it all together. Did you ever feel this sort of common thing that someone took your chance? You know, I see it in our comments mm -hmm. and, and I can understand why people get angry, mm -hmm. but did you ever feel that at times? No, I just felt, I never thought, I never felt like someone took my chance. I've, I was constantly trying to find the cocktail that would work for me to get the opportunity. And, you know, what was clear, and I'm a person who went through four director programs that um, the studios and the networks were compelled to put together um, because the hiring was so um, clearly angled in one direction. Um, you know, I just felt like, well, how do I get access to the people, you know, who are making these decisions? I felt like that would be the big, that I knew that that was the biggest hurdle. And so that, that hurdle was either making something that people could see and doing that as often as possible, um, to give myself as many shots as possible. And then also, um, discovering these programs where you would get to, learn how television was made and be included in these cohorts and these units that were um, selected to help bridge the gap between, you know, 93% of the directors being hired being white males and 7% encompassed everyone else. Um, and so those pipelines were helpful in kind of meeting the folks, learning how TV was made, and then, um, you know, hopefully shining enough to, to get the opportunities. Did anybody sit you down and say, Pete, I know you mean well, but like, why don't you, have you thought about going to law school? <laughs> no, no, no. Bright guy, no? Nobody ever okay. sat me down or tried to send me in another direction. I, you know, I feel like I was, I never had, I always had, people share maybe not the, the 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 strength of belief in me but i feel like everybody in my world believed in me because it was clear that i was being very thoughtful about it it wasn't like you know i didn't have like delusions of grandeur of like what it was going to take from me to get in the industry um i was informed on how it worked um, when I met a roadblock, I tried to hop up to 10,000 feet and look at it and then say, well, what can I learn from this and how can I pivot? You know, which is kind of the whole like through line of the book. You know, it's like, there's these, you're gonna, you're gonna have your, everybody's gonna have their own journey and their own story, but like, you're gonna find opportunities in these challenges and, and you have to challenge yourself to respond with your goal in mind and not with your emotion and not with your, you know, you know, anything else. Is this your quote right here, Pete? Uh, yeah, I said it. May, I, I'll take ownership. I know maybe someone else has said it somewhere in the world, but yeah, if you ride the wave long enough, the tide always turns. What does that mean? To me, that just is... <sighs> It, it means a lot of things. I, and it's funny, I have a lot of water metaphors. Uh, like in the book, I talked about being a yacht, 
you know, in the road to getting your first job, you're like this luxury yacht that doesn't have a slip to dock. And you're trying to build enough awareness in the marina for people to offer you a slip so you can get off the boat and walk on land, you know. Um, and then another one that I, I say often is, um, you know, sometimes when you're trying to make that transition, you're on two surfboards, but you can't ride them both at the same time. It's impossible. And the reality of that is you're going to have to choose which one you're going to get on. You can't ride them both. You're going to have to pick one and step off of one in order to get to where you're going. And so, you know, this quote, if you, if you ride the wave long enough, the tide always turns, um, is speaking to the idea of, you know, for those of you who are trying and have been trying to go after a singular goal, um, I can't remove being self-aware. I, you know, I can't remove being, um, uh, you know, being smart about the business and uh, being open to feedback. But if you take those three things and include that as kind of the back, the back end of this of this quote, I think that over a long enough timeline with those three things um, powering you, you'll find your opportunities. Can it mean though that there can also be a reversal of fortune? Yeah, I think I think exactly. There can definitely be a reversal. You can, it, you know, if you're seeing, you know, hit after hit after hit, or you know, everybody loves everything you do every time that you release it or you do it. It's probably going to come a time where it's not going to be as well received. Um, and then at that point, you know, I think then it just flips to the other side <laughs> and then you figure out how to, how to get out of that situation. But, um, you know, what do they say? Even a broken clock is right two times a day. You know, like it's just, I, I, I've found over my journey that having things that remind me of, um, it's not destiny or it's not predetermined or it's not like, you know, um, I'm not in some kind of, I can't think of the word I'm looking for. Um, I'm not in some kind of like career purgatory. You know what I mean? Like there's ways to navigate the downtimes. Um, and most of it's going to be about having a positive attitude. If you had gotten into TV directing right out of Sundance, mm -hmm. Do you think you'd still be directing today? <laughs> no, I don't. I think if I got into television directing right out of Sundance, uh, <clears throat> I would have made too many mistakes to build a career. I think that the, the first thing being TV and film are two different, um, they're two different mediums, clearly, but making a film whether you subscribe to the auteur theory or not, like it's the director's medium and television is the writer's medium. And if you don't understand that, you're not going to fare well. And I think that over the 17 years that we've, you know, identified between Sundance and First Job, you know, I did a lot of branded content. I did some commercial work where I learned that the product 
it's the product's medium. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's the it's the agency's medium and the brand's medium. And learning that was something that I could take to television and understand like, I'm gonna have ideas here. I'm gonna have pitches or interpretations of a scene or a script that may not align with what the showrunner wants. And that's fine. You know, I won't like, go into my shell and say, well, I'm not offering any more ideas because you don't like them. Uh, I know that there are things that I'm not aware of because I'm seeing episode 208 and you know that this is gonna end in season five in a particular way and that great idea I have doesn't complement what you're doing, you know? So the, understanding that reality and how to finesse um, the relationships that the, the relationship dynamics that come with that, um, you know, having the skill to deal with a variety of different types of personalities on on a set, cast, crew, executives, um, and having the stamina and or work ethic and work structure to deal with the realities of television production which is driven by how fast can you do everything you know to some degree i wouldn't have been i would not have been prepared for that so then even though the wait was long and here you are essentially helping other people's dreams mm -hmm. at the school nothing wrong with that but maybe it had seasoned you in the right way Definitely seasoned me. You know, I, I'm, I'm definitely not campaigning for, you know, 17 years um, <laughs> before, like, uh, you get hired to direct. But I, I do think that there's, you know, there's are things to learn before you can really excel in particular professional environments. You know, if you, you didn't ask me this, but, like, if, if I had to identified i'd say around based off of the experiences that i had i'd say around 2008 i was probably ready to do tv i learned enough about like people in politics <laughs> you know what i mean and and being a filmmaker and delivering for a client i learned enough i think by that time that i i wouldn't have been you know perfect but i would have I wouldn't have stunk up the place and I would have been able to get in there and kind of figure it out um, and avoid big mistakes. Well, you'd been through 9-11 and then, mm -hmm. then the recession was mm -hmm. around that time. Yeah. So it brought out probably interesting sides to people mm -hmm. in, in stress like that. Um, so once you've kind of weathered stuff like that, you think you were just like, okay, some pretty bad stuff has happened mm -hmm. in the world. And I think I know where my footing is, you know, because if you're steering a ship, i.e. a set that right. there's drama on, not enough time, somebody's mad or whatever, right. um, you know, what's the worst that could happen? You know? Right, right. So, so was there were there certain and I, I don't mean to assume that I know what happened. I'm, I apologize. But were there certain things that happened that, that just got you ready for it, or it was just time of you know so I the, think the it's, arc? I think it's just time. You know, like you do, you, you do so many projects, and Murphy's Law, anything that can go wrong will go wrong, 
is gonna happen on every project. So then it's like, you have the thing you did and you're like, oh, that little thing, I thought that was just gonna be a weekend. That was the project that I had a fire on set. You know, fires happen, okay. Or um, that was the project where I had, you know, a, a, a super egotistical person who wouldn't come out of their trailer for X amount of time. Okay, dealt with that. Um, you know what I mean? Like, uh, and I had to be the one to get him out. Um, this was the one where they pulled out the money at the last minute and I had, to, so you just kind of, you get, you begin to get enough of a window into, you might as well just be open to the world exploding. You know, it's like, it's like, oh, pandemic, right. Okay. You know, like, and not, not minimizing it, but sure, like no, you're, no, no. you do like get to a point where you're like. I don't know what to what the day will bring, but I know that I'll be able to absorb it, you know, um, appreciate the moment and try and find a way to get us home, you know, with some semblance of what we set out to accomplish today. And once you kind of get that, you can kind of, you know, go with the flow. Whereas maybe being slightly younger and maybe different things, it would rattle you too much. Oh, you'd be extremely rattled and there'd be, you know, self-loathing and self-importance and why me? And it's like, that doesn't, that doesn't get the thing shot. Sure. It's fun to wallow in though. It's fun. It, it is. <laughs> I mean, that, that's, that's what going home is for. You know, you go home and then you tell your partner and like, can, can you believe what happened today? And. They're like, I'm, uh, I guess I'll have to hear this for 30 minutes, but you know, uh, that's how it goes. What was the point of no return for you? Not when you were inspired to be a director, but when you realized that you could actually make a living doing this. Hmm. So, well, I realized that being a feature filmmaker was not going to be a way to make a living the moment that I said, that's a wrap on my first feature. <laughs> because, you know, it was, the money was raised over, a, it was the, the script was written and the money was raised over a six year period. And the amount of money I paid myself and the other producers, you know, we're all paid equally, was not even, like, I barely have to file taxes for the money. You know what I mean? Like, it was very low. And so, I'm like, all right, well, that was six years. You know, that was $15,000 over six years. All right, well, that's not gonna, you know, translate to moving out of my mother's house and whatever. So um, while I had a part, I had a full-time job at NYU, but that was, you know, $35,000 a year. It wasn't much living in uh, New York, New Jersey. And so um, I said, well, what do I know that, how can I take this skill that I think I have um, and find a way to exploit it, you know, for myself and, and make money off of it? And that was when I started building the production company to make videos. Um, and, you know, that was a journey of um, taking on more. It was it was a pivot moment, like we've kind of talked about. It's like, well, these budgets are small in their own way. You know, but maybe if I wear more hats, then I can keep more of the money. 
because the first couple projects that I did, it was like, well, the editor is making more than almost anyone because they're sitting here for the longest amount of time, like, like really on the clock, like four or five days of editing um, while, you know, I'm shooting for one day, producers producing, you know, for however long, but they were becoming the ones who were making the most money. So I was like, well, if I edit, then I'll make more money. If I shoot it, then I'll make more money. If I produce it and maybe bring on an assistant, I'll make more money. And so um, I was constantly trying to figure out how to survive economically as a filmmaker. Um, But that was, you know, very shortly after I finished the first feature. over time, you know, as the company grew and was doing all right with those videos, I look at it and I say, well, how can I make more money? Um, so I was like, we should be doing campaigns for people because this one-off video thing is, I'm looking at my QuickBooks at the time and I'm like, well, all these budgets are in the same strike zone. I feel like the only way to get more money is to change the cachet of hiring us, which I don't think is going to happen without a big project, or we offer more services and charge more because of the volume of it. And, you know, the irony of it is that that decision to go toward campaigns led to um, some of the best performing years for us. And it was one campaign in particular where I was like, I'm going to take my fee and make a short film. Because by that time, it's 2014, I'm so far removed in my mind from something that I've directed for myself because the feature film Premium, I directed in 05, it had finished its kind of distribution trajectory by 07. I directed a feature documentary in 07, 08. And so now I'm six years past when I could look at like a version of what I could do as a narrative director while having done thousands of videos for clients. And I was like, well, let me make something for me. And uh, this short film that I made, you know, was the thing that got picked up by HBO and got me into director programs and led to TV directing and still is a sample that I use now. Um, Wow, like six, seven years later, Um, because it was just, it's, it's a pretty unique execution and concept. So. You know, um, I kind of was always, I always had my mind and my target on how to turn this into a career without it having to be reliant upon the models that everyone believes are the only options. And so you were no longer working at NYU or just part-time? I was, so I've, I was working full-time at the desk job until 2012 and honestly that was the year of my 10-year 10-year anniversary at the job and i was like i'm not gonna get no disrespect to to the job it was great but personally i was like i'm not gonna get y'all gave me a certificate for 10 years you're not gonna give me a watch for 25 like i'm not doing it so um i left that in the 10th year i quit but uh I was teaching at that time and I was like, all right, well, the teaching is not as much of a guarantee, but it gives me more free time. And I think that I can balance, I can use that free time to devote toward building the production company. Then I can teach to have that kind of smaller guaranteed income. Um, 
and then, you know, hopefully be able to push toward the other, you know, my person, my passion projects at the same time. So, I mean, I feel like what's interesting is I hear myself talk or it may not be interesting, but it was all very methodical. You know, it was like, I want to create, but then like, well, what, how do I get there? I'm not just going to sit here and like, look at the stars and, you know, daydream about how great it would be to like make this thing. It's like, what can I literally wake up and do tomorrow to move the needle toward, you know, this goal? So if you hadn't started that production company, then you may never have taken some of that money and put it into the short that ultimately... I wouldn't have had had $30,000 to do it. Right, wow. You know? When did TV become a major goal for you? So TV became... So I was kind of peeking around the corner looking at TV, you know, starting around 07, 08. I mentioned in my book, one of my buddies, um, Seath Mann, was a director friend who had gone from indie films to television. And so I was like, okay, like he's a, he's a filmmaker to me, you know, and he's going to TV uh, and he's, I know him personally, he's a cool guy. So maybe, maybe there's something there. Maybe it's not the, the place where storytellers go to die. Cause you know, in the past people just, TV, TV. Um, and so I kind of always had my eye on him and there's, it's funny too, because there's like, I take, I'm not a mystical kind of person, but I, 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 I guess I'm spiritual. Um, and I often can't help but remark on like, the the kismet of events sometimes and i was walking down melrose i parked on melrose to go somewhere and i was like oh there's like something shooting and they had like all their equipment and like you know blocking this place of business or whatever and i was like do i want to walk down melrose or do i want to walk through the alley behind alley melrose alley melrose and i was like alley and so i walked down the alley and out of the corner of my eye, I see the back of his head. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and I was like, wait, you know, is that you? I yelled his name and he turned around. I was like, yo, that's crazy. I hadn't seen him in years. Um, and just like the react, like I vacillated for like 10 seconds deciding which way I wanted to go. And wow. if I were, had chosen the street, I wouldn't have seen him. And if I had been a second later, I wouldn't have seen him. Wow. And then that time, um, this must have been 2012, and he was like, oh, well, you should um, apply for this HBO directing program. So I applied and I didn't get in, but like I got a little bit closer. I had to get a DGA, um, uh, I had to get a DGA um, director uh, recommendation. Um, and I was able to kind of finagle that. And I was like, okay, I'm kind of getting closer, even though I'm still like on the outskirt. And so, um, you know, I, I applied to every program that existed. And in 2016, no, in, I'm sorry, in 2015, after my short that I made, um, which was called Black Card, premiered at this film festival in New York that was part of HBO, um, the gentleman who runs the Sony program, Brett King, was at the screening and came up to me and was like, you know, you should apply. 
And I was like, all right, well, you got it. And so, of course, it was like due for the next day, you know, with the letters of recommendation, notary, notary public and like an essay. And I was like, cool. I've been I've been at the wire before. And um, I got into the Sony program in the fall of 2015. And that was when, you know, around that time, you know, if I were I kind of talked a lot earlier about expectation. And I think, you know, the thing to kind of take away, at least as far as how I think about it, is like, I'll do a thing. I know that it can potentially do all of these things, like maybe help me get into TV or maybe, you know, get me an agent or manager. But then I kind of, while I know they exist and while I'll do my best to to create it in a way that helps me achieve that then I kind of in my mind back away from that because I don't want that to be the that the only way to put value on what I do with it and so this short film was very much that it was like all right I'm gonna call my actor friends I'm gonna if there's anyone I know that can you know maybe is more visible as an actor than somebody else. Like maybe I'll see if they'll do me a favor. I'll put the money where it matters on screen, you know, um, and in a perfect world, it'll help me get into TV. But also I know that won't happen. That I mean, I also know that's not a guarantee. I know it'll be a guarantee for me to make this short, look at it and say, okay, this is like where my talent lies when no one's telling me what to do and I'm making it for myself. And so, that alone will be something that I'll really get value from because then I can learn and, and pivot again. But it did the thing that I had hoped for and it got me into these, uh, it got me on the radar of, of people in the business of making TV. And so I did the Sony program, 2015. I did um, the HBO program, 2016. I did the Disney ABC program 2016 to 2018, and I did the uh, NBCU program in 2016. And through the relationships I was building, I was shadowing on shows, observing other directors, and um, you know, making sure that I was building a network of folks who were aware of me and what my goal was, which was to direct single camera comedy. Sorry, just a side note here. You mentioned your book. Mm -hmm. Can I just see your book for yes, a second? Yes, yes. Okay. So this is the book. Um, you know, this photo was actually taken on one of my return trips from L.A. back to New York after I'd moved out here. Um, and a buddy of mine, Eric Van Selfton, took it before we got oysters because that was our ritual. It's a good photo. <laughs> Thank you. Um, but yes, Transitions, A Director's Journey and Motivational Handbook. Um, and it's, you know, for me, it's the book that I wish I could have read along the journey of the 17 years to getting paid for narrative directing. And I distinguish that because I got, I made my own films. I did, uh, client work for people, but that, that was never someone saying, we want to hire you to direct this like narrative film or narrative TV show. Um, and, and tell our story in this kind of way with your with your skill set. So um, 
you know, it's a mixture of how-to, self-help, and inspiration. And uh, I think it's it's useful for anybody in a creative um, field, but it's particularly tailored for directors. You said you wish you'd had that book yourself when you were just starting out. Was there yeah. any tough love advice that you have in that book that you wish somebody had given you that maybe it doesn't always sit well, but then hmm. you think about it and you're like, yeah, it applies. Huh. You know, I don't know if, I don't know if there's, if I have tough love in the book, you know, I think it's, um, I'd have to think about that because I'm almost, I'm almost compelled to revisit my definition of tough love, but, <laughs> you know, I feel like the, what I found I responded to in the books that I read was someone walking me through undeniable facts, right? So and for, like, for instance, like in the book, I talk about going to the Robert McKee seminar and people have a lot of opinions on it, but on the third day he walks through, or at least when I took the, the course, scene by scene analysis of Casablanca, which is one of my favorite films. And so you walk through it, you break it down, and then for me, what that did was like, well, at the conclusion of this intricate breakdown of something where I'm nodding my head for five hours, like, yeah, that makes sense. Oh, that's great. That's smart. I can't go back to my script and where it doesn't have those things that I know work, I can't say it's good enough. You know what I mean? Like, I have to now work on my script and get it to the point where, with, where whatever I'm trying to do with this story matches the execution of those things in, in a Casablanca, you know? And I think in the book, the things that I talk about are like, you know, if we agree that these are the things, then how do we make sure that we, um, as artists and as business people, execute on those things? You know, so like, I even talk a lot about like, the technique and the psychology of the job. Like, it doesn't matter if you make the best shot list in the world, if you can't navigate the personalities that come out of the trailer and out of the office and out of the van every day, then you're not gonna get one third of that shot list and nobody's gonna remember what you had planned, you know? So um, kind of just getting into the nitty gritty of, of that and maybe opening opening the reader's eyes to those things more so than like, um, you know, maybe that maybe that's my version of tough love. Yeah, I was gonna say that that sounds like some tough love. Yeah, maybe advice. it is. I like that though. I you know what it is I I think of like whiplash and <laughs> <laughs> or staring you know, straight. Yeah, yeah, like I'm not like you know throwing throwing cameras at people. What are the four different levels of being a director? Again, I'll preface, there's, there's no higher level of importance per se. It's just like, um, and maybe it's not a totem pole. Maybe it's a, you know, it's, it's a hieroglyphic wall <laughs> that goes left to right. Um, but I think you've got, you've got short films um, and web series. Um, and in that space, you're, you're doing things that are narrative, but they're, they're going to take less time, um, at least on the production end. You, you, could have, you could do a short film that takes a great deal of prep, but 
typically just with the amount of money being spent and, and the nature of, of, of the content. I think you've got short film and web series. Um, I think then you've got um, commercials and music videos and branded content. And those are maybe the distinguishing factor to consider is that you're, you're outright selling a product right like you're 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 selling this you know lotion you're selling this um uh some of the stuff i did in 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 my day was like this kind of sponsored documentary profiles where a brand might want to interview a bunch of people about what they do but like that type of person is their direct customer you know what i mean um so it's it's much more of a of a clear intent to sell. And then uh, I think you've got television, which is obvious. And then you've got feature films, which are obvious, but the distinction being um, it's the medium for the director in features and it's the medium for the writer in TV. Um, and I think, you know, I would, I would offer that trying all of them and being able to direct in all of them is a great skill set to develop because you never know when one of them will be called upon. So as an example, I did um, the fifth episode of the final season of Silicon Valley. And so it's just like, it's this whole, um, uh, it was inclusive of an opening, a Mad Max kind of opening with Russ Hanneman and he's on a motorcycle and these women in these kind of Mad Max cars are chasing him and it's, you know, he's blowing them up like with this hand gesture or whatever. And so HBO being HBO was like, oh, let's go shoot the thing. So I was like, oh, we're going to actually shoot that. So we took an extra day outside of our production window for the episode and shot that thing. But then there was also um, the character sold a tequila in the show called Trace Comas, which the uh, three commas for being a billionaire. And so HBO and an ad agency partnered up to actually sell that tequila. So the last part of that five hour window where I shot the Mad Max scene was getting like 18 different lines of him selling the vodka which would be used for online commercials and it was like oh i got y'all they were like how are we gonna i was like i got this here's how we'll shoot it and we'll, but we'll the motorcycle will pull up he'll step off i'll get the each line and you know i'll get half of them in this shot we'll reset i'll get half in that shot it'll take us about 10 minutes and it was like this thing i had done it's kind of a running theme that this thing i had done for all these years was like now a very great asset for what I was doing at that moment. Um, and even like, you know, a lot of the documentary stuff that I did, you'd have to walk into a room and say, okay, um, I'm thinking of, uh, for my documentary on, on the Black Tankers, 761st, we secured an interview with General Colin Powell and we had 15 minutes of his time. And like, that was like 14 plus one to take a photo, right? And so got down to Virginia and they're like, you can do it in this room. And this room was like the office furniture cemetery. So in 20 minutes, they're like, okay, get all that stuff out of here. 
Let's leave that chair. All right, we're gonna gel the windows. I think I saw a flag in the lobby. Let's go get the flag from the lobby. All right, there's a plant. And doing that like has helped me with production design when walking into a location that is a potential location for an episode, but I have to envision what it could look like, you know, before I can, you know, say, I think this works or not. Like we don't, everything we walk into isn't what it will ultimately be. So I feel like I've left the, 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 the farm and entered in another world here, but I, there are all these like takeaways from each of these kind of four types of directing that I think help you in your execution of each other one. Sure. And then also too managing stress and also having the confidence to say, I can do that, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm sure totally different world, you know, being in Virginia, getting you know, maybe security clearance to go right. somewhere and, and interview this man right. versus uh, what seems like it would be a really fun set mm -hmm. Silicon Valley, but I'm sure there's a lot of moving pieces and just right. the pressure, but saying, yes, I can do that. Right. It's really cool. Yeah. I mean, so many great directors started doing product, you know? Yeah. I think it's a, I mean, if you can tell a story in 30 seconds, you know, and be aware of who your audience is, be aware of what the brand thinks of itself, you know, because that's really the guiding, you know, the North Star for how you need to choose your production design, your wardrobe, your frame composition, like all of those things. If you can do that in 30 seconds, that's one type of story, you know, then if you can take that and you actually understand, you know, human beings and their emotions and their wants and needs and subtext, I think it, it's, it, it just makes you very capable uh, at, at doing this job. How much time did you spend at each of those levels? One thing I often say is I'm platform agnostic. So that that's the flip side of like, that's the end game of delivery, right? Like, I don't care if it's TV, film, I guess Quibi came and went, but I thought that was cool. You know, like web is great with me. Like if it's a story I'm interested in, where it ends up, fine with me. Um, I have the same feeling for the, you know, so-called levels that we're talking about too. Like I would make a short film next weekend if I had a script, you know, um, because they keep, I love, there's a different challenge of short filmmaking, which is it's about an event and something, well, you, you introduce a status quo, you introduce an event and you then are left to imagine how the world, you know, resolves itself after this event has impacted the protagonist's world or life. Um, so I would do that next weekend in between directing an episode of television, you know? Um, I'm writing a script now, a feature script. Um, a co I'm co-writing a heist script that I hope to make, you know, as soon as I can finish it between directing these shows. Um, and I still have a commercial agent. So I'm, you know, they all kind of coexist to me. Um, but in the, in the years where the goal was to get to TV, I would say it was 
you know, feature filmmaker, you know, for, well, it was like feature filmmaker and short filmmaker from 99 to 08, because I made my short that went to Sundance. I made another short that went to a bunch more festivals in 04. I made uh, premium in 761st in that time. So I'm kind of jockeying back and forth. And then from 08 to 2015, I made a couple web series. I made, uh, I didn't do any short, I made another short film that uh, brought me back to TV. Um, and I was writing feature scripts all that time as well. Um, and then now, in, you know, let's say from 2015 to 2022, I've made a narrative podcast, you know, that was going to be a, a short film, but with COVID, um, I couldn't personally absorb the COVID costs that would be um, put on the production in terms of testing and everything that would go with that. So I was like, well, let's do a narrative version of it, an audio podcast, and I'm very proud of it. Um, What's it called? Sorry. Uh, it's called Wednesday Morning. Um, and it centered around, uh, it was like a conversation around the 2020 election, but in a very surreal kind of discreet charm of the bourgeoisie scenario. Um, and, you know, I got to work with my wife, who's an actor, Kelly McCreary, um, Coleman Domingo, who's an actor, Spencer Garrett. So it was great to just, you know, the, the thing that I, know, I learned from that project was it was kind of easier to get people for the narrative podcast because it was, no one worked for more than two hours because it was like, all right, you're 12 to two in the studio and we'll get your, you know, your character in this 50 page script and we'll knock it out. And so that had my mind clicking of like, I need to write another narrative podcast because then that could maybe be something that becomes intellectual property and then can transition to a TV show like home, um, like Homecoming. Um, uh, the, the Sam Esmail project. Um, so anyhow, uh, I, I feel like that for me, it's like wherever a story can live is the best place to put it and live might be the different format. You know, you might say, well, I can, I can explore more of this world or this character in TV versus two hours with a film. Great. You might also be uh, having to consider money. And so maybe the same idea and the themes of that are better served in a short film because you have $5,000 and can make a short, which is better than an idea that you just talk about. So I think they're all just like, they're almost like lenses, you know, like which lens is your favorite? Well, the one that gets the shot. What is the classic Hollywood story or story structure that every filmmaker slash writer should know? I think uh, plenty of people have said it better than me. You know, the hero's journey, uh, Christopher Vogler. Um, I think understanding the archetypes of, well, first that classic three act structure, which is the setup, the confrontation, the resolution, and watching a cat, being introduced to a character and their world as they are experiencing it, having them deal with whatever inciting incident challenges them and makes them rise to action. And then obviously um, the resolution where we see how 
the journey of act two has impacted them and will affect their life and the lives of those closest to them as they move past the world of our film. Um, you know, I think that's something you have to understand because it's really where most storytelling exists and how, and then in turn, how most people are used to absorbing and digesting a story. So learning what works before you break the rules is important. Um, I think that there are other, you know, then, then you just get into, you know, more particular understandings of character and structure. Um, that Hero's Journey book by Vogler is great because he breaks down like, you know, the character archetypes from, um, you know, the, I might misquote some of these people, but like you've got allies, you've got, um, you've got the shapeshifters, you know, the people who uh, are introduced as allies perhaps, but then they have ulterior motives, um, whether driven by plot or driven by character, like all of these things are, are helpful to make you kind of look at the world of your story and begin to like pick up the right tool to craft it into something that best realizes whatever your themes and your points are that you're trying to trying to accomplish. Um, so I feel like that's that's really the key. Um, then if you are, I think that Robert McKee's book obviously has like a really great story triangle that was just one element of the book that but it was very um, I'm a I'm a visuals person. <laughs> and so I think in his triangle, he has like, you know, at the top of the triangle is um, the classic Hollywood narrative that we're talking about now. At the bottom is um, the anti hero anti hero, you know, like a Travis Bickle in Taxi Driver. And then at the bottom on the other side is the um, the multiple character story like a Magnolia or anything Robert Altman. And the joke that he makes is as you move down the triangle, your audience gets smaller, you know, and I think that's true, you know, um, unless you have a movie star in it and you can make Magnolia, you know, <laughs> or crash, uh, or, crash mm -hmm. or, you know, whatever it might be. Right. Um, but yeah, understanding those things, I think, is important to being able to have some agency and control over the story while still, you know, being responsive to what the characters tell you needs to happen. Did you watch Casablanca again after you took McKee's class? Oh yeah, I've, I've probably, I've watched it often. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And did you see it with new eyes once you, once you took his class? Definitely. I saw it with new eyes. You know, you start, there's, there's like, I can enjoy something while watching, watching, you know, the sausage being made. You know what I mean? Like, I can watch like, oh, I see what they're doing. I see why they did that in that scene. And that was still, you know, it was very economical. It was still character driven. And that was a smart way to do it in 1941. You, you know what I mean? Uh, uh, or even now, like I'm watching, uh, we're watching Top Boy on Netflix. 
And there are just certain things that kind of have to happen in the story. And when they happen, I'm watching and I'm like, that was a very smart way to do something that has to happen. And so when you know the mile markers, that's when you can begin to, you know, add your own perspective, add your own sauce, you know, your your own interpretation and make it unique. But you can't, if you don't know that that mile marker is happening, you know, you can't do it at all. You know, a bad example would be like if you were a vegan, you have to know what certain elements are doing in a, in a non-vegan dish to then say, we need this thing to accomplish what cheese would accomplish. You know, you know what I mean? And so like the architecture of storytelling, you, you've got you've to have a, you've got to be fluent. When you went to direct, uh, was it some of the later episodes of you? Of you, I did um, episode 307 and 308. So that was um, third season, episode seven and eight out of 10 total episodes. So did you go and, and rewatch and, and really study who these characters are? Because they're very, very clear, yeah. interesting characters, fascinating. Yeah, with any show, I'll go and, I mean, some shows make it impossible because they have too many seasons but um with you i watched every i probably watched every episode twice um because i'm, I'm watching for um style i'm watching for and that could be from the writing to the to the tone how they handled different moments whether it's you know violence or sex or um you know uh camera uh Nowadays, how are you applying text, you know, and then being on a phone? Because that's a whole other thing, you know. Um, and I'm just trying to digest. It's like the information is already there for me to, to, to start from. So I'm just trying to take it all in. Um, a lot of times I, I might notice like, oh, well, you used to do this thing in season one. And, you know, it's not really happening anymore. Um, is that... Like, why did you step away from that? And sometimes they're like, oh, that was a thing we hated. Or maybe they might say, oh, you know what? That was cool. I don't know why we aren't doing that anymore. Let's do that. You know, so I'm trying to, like, information is key. Um, And then, you know, I'll read any and all scripts up to my episode because some things won't be finished. So, you know, in a scenario like that, you might have, I could watch maybe two episodes, you know, 301 and 302, and then I've got to read three, four, five, and six to know where we are in the, in the story and then figure out what is happening in my episode. And then I've got to have questions about where it's going so I, I'm aware if I'm setting up anything in particular for the final two. Sure. So. And a lot of chance meetings mm-hmm. in, in a show like that. And yeah. and a lot of characters uh, lying and not revealing themselves, yeah. which is sort of, you know, the audience is privy to it, but the other characters aren't. Right. And that show, you know, last little inside for, for the directors out there, that show was an interesting challenge that I didn't foresee, which is blocking for... Joe for Penn Badgley's character, where when he, we're in his mind and he's got his thoughts, blocking in a way where he can have business and be moving around a room 
So those those thoughts can kind of be private and he's not compelled to engage with the other person. So it's like if I'm if 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 two people are looking at each other, it's a little weird to have this monologue on that this voiceover on him while he's really talking to somebody over here. But let's say I make him take a walk over here, get a plate out of the cupboard, his back's to her, he comes back here, puts the plate down, a fork and a knife, and then he looks up. That could cover all the VO of his inner thoughts. And so it was a lot of like really having to think like the actor and come up with pitches that would work for that reason. Um, And so I'm sure that'll be a skill that I'll take to something else that I can't predict. We're hoping we can imagine two filmmakers. One is an artist and she spends five years or so focusing only on the craft of filmmaking and nothing else. She learns story, camera, angles, lenses, blocking, and so on. So then we have the other filmmaker and this filmmaker spends the same five years, but only on the business. And um, she studies the market, financing, distribution, budgets, networking, etc. Which of these two filmmakers do you think we'll have a longer lasting career? I would say that the person spending, if, 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 our, if, two, if these two people are, on, are one and the same, right? Um, like it's, it's, it's Pete and Bizarro Pete, right? <laughs> and you've got, um, I think the, the version of this person that is focused on understanding the craft and is make and I'm going to add an element of of a constant of they're both making things. Um, I would say that the person studying the craft is going to um, have a longer career because they are likely at some point to make something impactful. They'll they'll be able to take what's in their heart and put it on videotape, I'm gonna say on film, but on tape or in a final product that best represents what they felt when they started the project. Because that's really the divide, right? The divide is I have this feeling I wanna make this thing and for a while the execution doesn't match the authenticity of the feeling. And then you get to a point where you've built up enough skills to get pretty close to how you felt in how you deliver it for the audience to feel that way too. The person who is making things, but maybe leaning more into the studying of the business and and all of that, you know, I, I feel like the real asset in the industry is in voice you know, and, and is in perspective. And so I feel like they may know what, they may learn what they're supposed to do or, you know, here's, um, here's how you do it or, you know, but I think if it's in broad strokes and in not like spending the additional time that the other person is and really mastering the craft, um, I think I think this person wins. Okay. What if this person becomes so, you know, that their voice is so unique and they just make this incredible film, but they're naive to the business. Mm-hmm. 
Is that is that something that could take them out in some sense? I mean, it could take them out. I mean, you know, in the perfect world, they meet a they meet a really honest agent and manager and lawyer who is really interested in nurturing their talent and you know cares about their you know or tailors their representation to the individual you know but the likelihood of having to rely on that i think is is uh, a gamble i wouldn't take you know so like you know and all not it seems it seems like the right thing to do but that's kind of i feel like my book is actually for the person you're talking about you know like my book is for the person who is spending all their time trying to be creative make xyz work know how to pick the right lens and tell the story in the right way you know but i'm kind of in their ear saying that's not enough though don't forget about this you know have you read the trades you know and i think it's the the superhero of this is like you know is the is the marriage of of the two people that you're presenting you know how can you take uh you know and that's not 50-50 sometimes it's it's 70-30 because it or you know it's 70 business 30 creative because now I'm in development and I got to talk to people <laughs> and I've got to like have meetings and meetings and then now I'm making this thing and it's 80-20 you know now I'm I'm the creative director and I've got other people around me taking care of the you know, people management and business of it. And I need to be in that space. Like it's a, I guess the, the, the real, the real revelation of your question is the fact that, you know, you have to kind of be all these things in my mind, if you want to have the best opportunity at preserving your intent. Um, and it's no different, you know, than even like in indie films. Now they talk about this producer of marketing and distribution, like who's working on you know, social media things well before you've even gotten the money, you know, because it's going to be a value add down the line. Um, and I remember I, I talked to one person on a doc I was working on. He said that, you know, people complain about the middleman or the middle person, right? And, you know, oh, I, there are these gatekeepers and, you know, we can't do this, we can't do that. But the reality of it is, is with the democratization of all things now, you could argue that the middle person, the gatekeeper is you. And you have to change your connection to what you're willing to do. Because theoretically, you could take your iPhone and shoot it. You could take your computer and get some software and edit it. You could release it on your website that you designed. You could market it through your social media campaigns, which you manage. Like there's no one stopping you anymore. And so, there's no other, there's no better time than now to marry those two profiles together. And I think if you look at the filmmakers and the storytellers who are really doing well in today's world, that's exactly what they've done. In your book, do you talk about, do you have a, a chapter about sort of people that don't want to focus on the business? Um, I don't have, no, I don't have a chapter dedicated to that, but I, I do speak specifically to representation securing it and what you should look for in that team um, because to your point 
you know, at the end of the day, or not at the start of the day too, um, the, your reps get paid when you work. So they work for you. They don't actually send you a check from anywhere connected to, you know, their job. They're sending you the check from the people who paid you to do the show that you did. And so um, really being con thoughtful, it's a partnership, it's a marriage. Like you have to, you have to marry the right people, you know, and you have to know, you have to be clear about what you want. Um, you have to be, you know, I think it works best when you're aware of how the business works, because then they recognize that you are also, you know, perhaps more of a partner than some of their other clients in your own career. And, you know, at the end of the day, like you, you have got to take the reins on, on the business of you. How is it possible that you read a screenplay, what, 50 times before you shoot it? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so when I get a, you know, my perspective on directing is I'm trying to be the authority on the material. And most of the things that I do that are, you know, in the feature or short space, I've written or I've been part, I've been a part of that process from the beginning. Um, I've given notes from the beginning. I'm aware of all of the kind of mental gymnastics that are behind those, you know, 10 pages or those 120 pages. And so when I get a script for TV, because I haven't been privy or had the privilege of seeing that process, I'm trying to get a very thorough understanding of what's on the page so I can begin to deconstruct what I think that process may have been. So um, that means I'm reading the script as many times I, as I can in as many different environments as I can. Um, I'm reading the script as different crew people. Um, this is just my personal um, take. I like to read it as the cinematographer. I like to read it as the wardrobe. A costume designer, I like to read it as the production designer because then, and I read it as a director last because I feel like all of those things help me get into the mind of um, A, the people I'm collaborating with, but like B, I get an understanding of what I have at my disposal as, as the director. So I could read a scene and on the third reading, maybe I'm like, oh, you know what? Now I'm thinking about it as the actor because I've done all the other thinking and I'm like, oh, what if the actor wants to sit down um, in this scene? Well, I'd love for them to have a chaise lounge uh, versus like a chair, you know? So now, you know, that third reading revealed a furniture selection, you know what I mean? Um, or if I'm reading at home versus reading at a cafe when the world was open like that, um, sometimes just being around a bunch of people changes what I'm digesting. So um, it's important for me to do that. I also make a spreadsheet where I take all the storylines, um, and this comes from another book on directing. Um, I'll take all the storylines and put them in a different column so I can have a top-down look at the architecture of the entire episode. Um, and then it also doubles as a brief refresher for me on set 
should I need it? Or if an actor's like, you know, well, where was I in the last scene? And I'd be like, oh, well, that was, we're doing scene 40 now, but in scene 22, you did X, Y, Z. And then they can be like, okay, great. I know where I'm coming from. So um, being as thorough as possible is the, is the, is the goal. Interesting. So you would digest a script differently in, a, let's say, a busy co coffee shop here in L.A. Mm -hmm. than you would, let's say, in a library. Yeah. And I think it's just it's kind of hard to explain with any value that's not like it just feels different. But like, you know, you, you might be paying more attention in one of those, you know, settings than you had in another or maybe you heard something in the background that triggered a subconscious thought about something you're experiencing here i don't know yeah i can't put a i can't put like a thumb on it or point to what it is exactly but i do think i know for sure like i've it's been on subsequent readings where something is revealed um and so i'm, I'm trying to really give myself as many opportunities to find out, find those revelations before I'm on set. And as the director last, you, you wear the director's hat reading it last. That's interesting. Because I, I feel like I can't, I have to, I have to, I'm, I can only direct something that's been figured out. Like otherwise, like I'm, I'm putting camera in random places that are not driven by actor or like some other level of like thematic thought that is tethered to story you know because i mean i could i could very easily be like oh yeah i'll put the camera here i'll do that that uh we'll, we'll swoop around but then like you know as you read it you're like i'm, I'm gonna treat that storyline like this actually and i have to i have to settle into it a little bit more do you ask the screenwriter for story A, B story, C story, or how many storylines are in the episode? Mm. I, when I get the script, I, I, I extract them myself. I try and identify them um, as, you know, oh, the A story is, um, you know, this character is having a crisis of confidence about something at home. And then the B story is um, this thing at work. And then the C story is one of the kids is going through X, Y, Z. And then the D story, you know, um, and I'm sure sometimes I'm probably maybe adding a storyline, you know, because I might I might really carve them out uh, to be distinctive. But maybe in their mind, something is a similar storyline, you know. But uh, yeah, just go in and, and carve it out. Um, and when I, I have time, I'll try and give each scene a name. Um, now, I have less and less of that time now, but <laughs> I try and give each scene a name. So I'm like, as I step into directing, it's like, this is, you know, uh, so-and-so's retribution or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so I can kind of have a guiding principle for how I'm talking about the scene to the actors or the crew, how I want to shoot it, um, and just have a, you know, something that's helping me make, have a point of view. Because um, at the end of the day, I think I'm there to apply in a point of view, and a point, to apply a point of view 
from which to shoot and direct the scene. Right, because we were talking about inventing Anna um, mm -hmm. before we, when we were setting up. And so I guess you could say, well, you know, we're learning about this journalist and she's mm -hmm. there and she doesn't want to do another Me Too story. She right. wants to do something else and she's at war with her editor and she's just fascinated by this, this story of this woman and she's having a crisis at home. I guess, I don't know if she's right. going to have a baby or she's trying to or something and she's not even sure she wants to. Right. And then she just becomes obsessed with this woman, mm -hmm. almost as a way to avoid her own life, yep. really, in a lot of ways. So yeah, that's the, the, those are basically the three stories, and I'm sure there's other parts to it. But yeah, that's right. You had me thinking of that just because. Yeah, in different episodes, there were probably other characters where it was like, and this is the D story, and this is the E, you know, because um, some other supporting character was important to. Because it's always, it's always this point counterpoint to whatever the theme is. It's like, here is, you know, this idea represented at its best via this character. And here's this idea represented at its, you know, perhaps worst through this character. And the cocktail of the entire episode hopefully says, and here's what we think about that. Right, and maybe that's when she meets the other people that knew Anna. Mm -hmm. Right, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, right. now I see what you're talking about. How do you figure out how many storylines are in an episode? Um, yeah, I mean, it's just carving them out. As I, so, I mean, like, functionally, like, as I read the script, and this is, well, this is probably into, you know, second or third reading. Like, the first one is I try and let that be uninterrupted and purely as a reader um so i can kind of just say oh okay here's the story you know that it's is being told i don't want to start saying like oh that's funny oh that's witty or you know making notes on oh i think that's a high angle shot like i just want to read it uninterrupted but second or third episode i'll go through and when making that spreadsheet you know first scene is usually what the episode's about Right. So, okay, boom, I'll take that second scene. Um, I'll just go scene by scene until all of the, until I, and, and as, and as a new storyline is introduced, I'll give it a new heading. More often than not, I don't think you're going to get out of act one without having been introduced to all of them, you know? And so, and, and in, in television, in some of the, some of the shows will, um, literally tell you this is the cold open, this is act one, end of act one. Others may do dip to black, you know, which is basically the same thing. Um, and so you know, like in, in that act one or, you know, in that first area of scenes before it dips to black, that's probably going to be all of the storylines that are at play because it moves so quickly that you're not likely to have a new storyline introduced in Act Two. So you have an, like an Excel document yeah. already sort of like plugged in, and then you just for each new project you just yeah. plug in. The, okay, interesting. Yeah. And so you do that fairly soon after you've read the script a few times. Mm -hmm. I'll do that fairly soon. Um, you know, like I mentioned, it's useful for being on set, but it's also useful in prep because in prep. I'm 
out on. I'm in the van or I'm self-driving and we're going to all these different locations. And now instead of having to thumb through the script, I can go to my spreadsheet and say, oh yeah, yeah, okay, this is that scene. And then on a location scout, I can glance really quickly, remind myself of why we're here, you know, and what what we need, and then move through the process pretty efficiently. Okay, and this is going to be different than a shot list? Yes. Much different, okay. Yeah, yeah. Do you do anything that's more tangible that's not on the iPad or your laptop? Um, no, you know, the, the driver, before COVID, I used to have, I used to have a script and I would have these shot lists that I would print out from Hollywood Shot Designer. And that would be a function of getting the floor plans from, you know, that, I mean, that I can show you. Um, that would be a function of getting the floor plans from resume editing. Yeah, that would be a function of getting the floor plans from the production designer uh, and then implementing them into Hollywood Shot Designer and then blocking it. So as an example, um, this is a floor plan from a location, a club location. Um, in West Adams uh, for a scene from Insecure. Oh, nice. And this was uh, three characters walking up to a club. Uh, and I'm sorry, two characters walking up to a club. Uh, Issa and Daniel, she's blue, he's red. Um, they find a bouncer at the door. Bouncer one and bouncer two are our gray folks. And then we had... Um, another character, um, I didn't put the name here, but that she knew from high school who walks up and helps get them into the club. And so, you know, I've got, um, I don't necessarily put everything in here, but I'm, I'm you know, I at least have the broad strokes. Um, I had this wide from across the street that tracked with them as they walked past the line of people, thinking that they would walk up and get in. Of course they don't, and they get, they're met with security. Um, I think this wide from, uh, it says wide from across symmetrical tighter for crowd exit. That was something that I got at the end of the night. It was for the end of the sequence, but I got it. You know, you shoot all the exteriors at one time. And then, uh, I knew I would have, I would bring them back on this steady cam shot in the green land and then over the bouncer back to them and then I would have, you know, coverage and then coverage going both ways. And so in the in the pre-COVID days, I would have these all printed out um, and I would have my script printed out and I would just kind of walk around with all of these. I'd share those with the AD and with the DP and obviously things change. You know, some scenes go exactly as planned, but it's mostly to have a plan and to be able to have the crew prep toward an idea. Because even if the coverage all changes, this is more, this is where the actors are going to be. Um, and so, uh, but with COVID in the beginning, there was a commitment to not, to being paperless, to not handing, like when, when people were washing their mail, you know, like it was, uh, no productions were handing out scripts. So everything became, um, electronic 
And so another app that I use, Scriptation, became my go-to. And so it's great because the script's in there. Now I don't have to have a script. I can update new drafts with my notes from a prior script. And instead of having that app I showed you, Hollywood Shot Designer, I would just add a page into the script, take a screenshot of the plan and just draw on it in the script. So then everything just became one document. And sorry, that's called Shotlister? That's called Hollywood Shot Designer. Shot Designer, I'm sorry. Yeah. And um, so you can kind of just plug in the exact sort of what the, you said Issa Rae was red, her character. Right. And then the the other character was blue and then gray were the friends and stuff. So you can assign the sort of the Yeah, there's a bunch variables. of like icons for characters. They have lights. They have different props. They have cars and motorcycles and kind of all the basic things that would pop up. And you can just say, boop, 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 you know. And if you want, you can animate the cameras. But at a certain point, you know, I, I feel like it becomes a little too much because you'll figure you have to leave room to figure it out on the day but it's a great device for prep so people can have an idea of where the production should be leaning and so and everybody gets a copy of that um well in this case the dp and the ad because they're filtering it out to you know the camera department and then the ad is uh it's helpful for the ad to be able to manage how much time will be needed for a particular scene but actors and background actors, talent, they're not going to no, do that. Okay. No, no, no. I mean, they, I might show it to them if they wanted to, sure, but sure. overwhelmingly um, comes down to the communication, which is the, again, like the tough part of the job, like, you know, being able to relay what you want, being able to do it in a way where you're not um, a dictator, you know, and you like, you like in my mind, I've got this whole scene figured out because I, I can't show up without having done that. Now, it doesn't mean I'm right, but I've got it all figured out and I've got to allow the actors and the cinematographer, everybody to have their time to find it and also feel collaborative in it. And so it's like finding out, finding, developing the methods to do that, you know, that's the journey, I think, of the director. How much of directing at the highest levels in this business is about skills you have at your craft versus people skills and politics? So I had I had a I had a meeting uh, for a show or for a, a network rather um, last week, and we got into a conversation about soft skills, right? Um, which are what we were kind of talking about earlier, like. You can have the best shot list in the world, but the soft skills help you get somebody out the trailer, help you convince somebody that the work they're doing is great, help you, you know, deal with uh, whatever scenario that might arise, right? Um, I think that a director without humanity is going to be is going to have challenges doing their job. Because, you know, I think back to being younger and you're just so focused on, oh, gotta get the shot. Like, uh, why if everybody would just come here and do what I'm ready to do, we could get, you know what I mean? Like, like you're just, it's all about getting this thing done. You're feeling the burdens and the pressure of the money, 
you know, because you're probably over over leveraged and you're tired and why won't they just do what I want them to do? And, you know, that is also natural when you don't have the tools to, you know, deal with the pressures of the job. Um, but I think as you learn them, you do recognize that um, those soft skills are, are, are key, you know, and, and look, you know, I've done I've done episodes as a as a guest director where I've been brought to a show to direct an episode. And that is at that point, they think that you can do it. They think you're competent and you can keep you won't mess up their show. Right. Um, then there comes a point where like now I'm a producing director on a show and a co-executive producer. Now they're saying, well, we think you're someone that can help work with all the directors will hire, can help, you know, be a liaison between post and the producers for the creative. Now that's a different person in terms of skills, right? Um, then there's the, you know, pilot director, you know, like I have a pilot I'm attached to. That's a different thing because they're looking for someone who can do both of those things while also, you know, maybe have more owner have a have a little more ownership of it as a director than a guest director because you're creating a, a look for a show. Um, so you're marrying like so many different parts of of your of of what you do, um, and knowing when and when and why to apply pressure. I think is the is the um, director's you know challenge. Can you tell us about? how to politic and what is that? Mm -hmm. uh, I think, you know, how to politic, I think is, is that same kind of answer, like knowing when to apply pressure. Some things, when I was, when I was, when I was working as faculty, um, I used to be in a lot of meetings, um, a lot of meetings, and I would just kind of, I had a joke where I was like, People can talk about whatever they want until it sounds like there's about to be a policy change <laughs> that's going to affect the job I do. I can sit here and be unmoved because some I don't know why that person may be performing what they're doing right now. Maybe they're making a stance for some reason I have no idea about. And this person has tension with them and that person always says something and this person doesn't want to you know, reveal what they don't, what, you know, all these things. But the moment it sounds like there's about to be a new pile of work on my desk, well, now uh, I have a thought, you know? And so you, I just kind of learned, like, when is, be, like, read the room and see what's really happening and whether or not something impactful is happening something performative is happening, you know, and whether or not what you might be getting ready to say matters or is going to have an impact. Um, and I, I mean, I, I think that was a that was one of the best things that, again, I didn't know I was learning, but I think that was one of the best things I learned being in like a university environment. And so I try and, you know, maintain vigilance in 
reading a room and seeing what's happening and whether or not, you know, and, 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 and measuring my response um, to get what I'm looking to get. And that's not, you know, I'll flip this and say, that's not to say that everything is a manipulation and everything, but, you know, I can, I can remember one time being called into a trailer, hair and makeup trailer, um, with like, you know, showrunners, star actor, actress, and like hair and makeup. And I'm being asked all these questions and I'm like, what's happening? And it was about a scene that we had agreed to shoot a certain way. And then I'm listening and listening and listening. And I'm like, oh, what I'm recognizing here, because I'm not being, I'm not like, uh, like being super responsive to like the fact, like, first off, we've already talked about this. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, talk, talk, talk. Because I know the more you talk, the more I'm going to get something that I can begin to understand. And... You know, I don't know if it, if it was three minutes or, or 10, it felt like 30, but I was like, oh, it sounds like to me and my guess here that this actress wants the body double, but doesn't want to ask for it. And I'm pretty sure that's what it was. And I said, you know, well, why don't we just do the body double? Blah, blah, blah. Because there were all these things connected, it seemed to her for that request. You know what I mean? And like, um, we, I, I noticed that our relationship kind of got that much better after that. And I was just reading the room and trying to, be, like, I, I could say we've talked about it three times, but like, does that matter? You know, so I think it's, it's being, it's allowing people to be people, you know what I mean? And, and trying to um, be aware of like the multiple ways you can get to an end result that maintains the integrity of what you set out to do. So there's not just subtext on the page, there's there's some on set too. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what if we think we have soft skills, but we really don't? How, how, does, mm. how does the production show us that? How do other mm. people show us that we actually don't have the soft skills we thought we had? Well, that, that makes me reach for the book. Oh, actually. good. Okay. <laughs> because in, in the book, in the, in the introduction, um, you know, cause as with anything, I'm, you write something and, and for me, I want to go like, well, what will make you listen to this? Right. And so in the introduction, um, yeah, here we go. Um, there are three questions that uh, I'll just, I'll actually read you cause it's not a, it's not a long thing. Uh, in 2014, after six unsuccessful years of unrealized efforts to break into episodic television directing, I asked myself a series of probing existential questions. And I think these three questions answer the question about like, what if you think you've got soft skills or, but you know, things aren't happening. I asked what's not working. What if everything I'm doing is wrong and how can I pivot? So if you think that you've got those skills, but you ask yourself what's not working and you look and you say, well, my films do well, but like this isn't happening. Maybe it's that. Maybe I don't know the industry and the mechanics of the business well enough. You know, maybe I keep making films that if I had read the trades, 
I could have seen that there were already two films in development about that thing and mine was never going to compete. You know, I think th that kind of those kind of questions that demand self-reflection um, help you avoid getting mired into something that you think is what it's not. Can we learn soft skills? Can we learn how to, I mean, we all think we know how to right. work with other people, but sometimes life shows us that yeah. that's not the case. I think we can learn them. I had to learn them. Yeah, like, I mean, I think I had some handful of them, you know, um, but to your earlier question, like, like if I would have been offered TV coming out of, out of Sundance, it would have been different, <laughs> you know? And so I think, and I, and over the next, you know, years, 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 and even, you know, I learned a new soft skill last week, I'm sure, you know? Um, I think that, I think the thing, it's not the, it's not the ability to learn, it's the appetite to learn, right? Because we can, we can keep learning until the day we die, you know, but if we think that we've, we've got it all figured out, then it's off the table. Once you establish yourself as a working television director, do you interview for your next job? Oh yeah. Yeah. You do a lot of, you know, once, so it's a lot of general meetings before you ever get hired, which is basically the, are you, well, I get along with you. Are you crazy meeting? You know what I mean? Like, um, and you do a lot of generals. So a lot of, so more and more people can say, oh, you know, competent person, nice enough person. Like you get what we're doing over here at our company, maybe, you know, and somewhere along the line, someone's going to say, okay, we're going to hire you. Like Kenya Barris did for me in 2017. Um, and so then you begin to build your resume. Hopefully you get invited back to a show because that's kind of, so if the general meeting went well and people were like, okay, talented, not crazy, you get what we're doing over here. Getting invited back is the affirmation of that. Oh, they must not have been crazy. They must have really done a nice job and they must have really understood what the show wanted. Um, the kind of industry, not wisdom, but saying or whatever, thought is that when you see someone with a bunch of one episode at a bunch of different places, it's like, well, why aren't you ever going back, right? And so you get invited back, then you do more and more shows. Um, the beauty of, of, of today that might mask uh, the invited back is that a lot of shows are doing block episodes where, <clears throat> like you, like I did two at one time, so it might look like you got invited back. Um, but once um, you do enough work, the work itself begins to be what vets you. So someone may say, oh, we're thinking about, or even for like the shows that I'm on or where, where we are looking for directors, you'll say, oh, they've done X, Y, Z, blah, blah. And you can just look and tell that they have have the skill set to do your show. Um, then you'll probably call around and see if there are people that you think, uh, people that you know know that person that can you know give you a little bit more insight into them. So that's where the reputation and, 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 and that community is really important. And then after that, you always have um, some kind of Zoom 
which is maybe less of a meeting. Um, like it might, they, they'll get to know you and, and you'll probably speak really specifically to the show. So it's not a general, it's like about this show. Um, and at that point, you know, I feel like you're probably, it's probably your job to lose. So I guess the long answer um, to your question is at this point, I'll either get an offer um, or I'll get um, like an outright offer. They want you to do these, this block of episodes because they've done enough vetting that they feel like they don't need to um, speak directly to me or they already know me or they want to have a meeting on Zoom. And uh, if it's at that point, they're probably highly considering me for the job. And that's the final step. What are a few do's and don'ts for a general? Maybe don't don't yeah. speak too much. You might say the wrong thing or I you know, I think the I think meetings are you gotta find a way to still be yourself in an unnatural environment, you know, because it's it's kind of like speed dating, you know what I mean? And so I feel like the do's are to be very clear on have a very clear and concise way to deliver your your backstory and who you are, your bio, your origin story. Um, to be very clear on why you want to do the show. You know, hopefully, who you are and what you've done connects to the show. So then it becomes to make almost perfect sense why you should be directing it. You know, um, don't come in there and be unaware of. The person you're talking to. Um, there are so many opportunities to find a connective thread that Google will help you with, whether it's, oh, you went to NYU or, oh, you're from New Jersey or um, you worked with the person I know, you know, on so-and-so project and they say hi, you know, like any little thing that, you know, that's not going to get you the job, but it, it, it begins to warm things up a little bit. Um, and I think be be clear about um, you know what you offer to the show, and ask questions. I think to come in and not have any questions um, belies a person who's not very curious, because with with those questions you gain information. You know, um, not that I'm the I'm the model for it, but like I'm thinking like. Like you asked me a question about this person versus that person. And I'm like, well, what is that person's goal? Because that that's going to help me kind of, you know, answer the question. And sometimes in a, in a meeting, asking questions helps you figure out what you might not want to say. And just absolute don'ts. Um, well, yeah, it's the don't come in there unprepared, you know, whether that's in understanding the person in front of you, in understanding um, it their bio or some portion of it that you can because sometimes I've come across a few people where it's like you scrub yourself from the internet somehow and I don't know how you did that but I don't know anything about you um so their personal bio their um their bio here at this job what did they have the power to do right um are they the person who hires or are they the person who weeds out and then you know this is the meeting that gets you to the next person who may actually be able to hire like you know uh what projects are they proud of is has anything been greenlit recently or 
you know, did a show just premiere last week, watch that show and be able to talk about it, you know, because that shows that you're invested in what they do as well. Um, because at the end of the day, I think the way I try and view working professionally in a world full of collaborative, creative people is I want as many people to make their projects as possible. I'm here to be a support for that, whether it's maybe it's feedback or maybe it's directing an episode or, you know, maybe it's a go get them champ, you know, but uh, providing that type of energy, I think, is something that folks are happy to have around them. And lastly, how early is too early? For what? For To show up at one of these meetings. Oh, how early is too early to arrive? I mean, you know, make sure you're there on time. Uh, I, I, get, I try and get there 30 minutes early, but then you won't see me in the lobby until, you know, five minutes before, you know sure. what I mean? Okay. Maybe, maybe 10. 10 is a good amount of time because I want to, you do want to give yourself time to get in, you know, sit down, you know, re, you know, run through whatever you might have prepared again. Sometimes it might be going into the bathroom and stretching out a little bit or whatever, whatever you need to do. Um, but don't, don't walk in there at 128 for 130 because um, unless you've got some abilities that I don't have to smoothly transition to, to meeting mode. You don't go in expecting to be hired. Instead, you go in to make it impossible for them not to hire you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. How, how is that different? So, you know, the way I view it is, and this is like, I think, I think a big takeaway from the book is that I'm, I'm big on viewing things through the prism that I can control, right? And, and viewing things in a way that, you know, really prevents getting beaten down by the realities of, of what we do in a world where you're selected and, or not selected for reasons known and unknown, um, fickle and, and arbitrary and sometimes spot on. And so, um, my thought was when I was trying to get jobs and, and I, I still carry it with me is that I understand that there are people who will be easier to hire for a particular job. And that, that happens now, um, you know, but my job is to come into this meeting and make it the most challenging decision for them to not hire me. So what does that mean? I'm going to come in and tell my bio origin story and it's going to be, you know, concise. It's going to be, um, you know, whatever, funny. It's going to, I'm going to give you the best me that's honest, but designed to, you know, connect with what we're talking about here as a project um, as possible. Um, I'm going to show you that I've done my research. I'm going to speak about the show because I've watched enough to develop a point of view that's informed, uh, I'm going to be interested in asking questions about it. I'm going to let you know outright how much I want to do this show. Um, you know, all the things that make it where you're like looking at the grid of people up for it, 
You know, you may have somebody that's done more um, work than I have in this particular genre or just at all, but maybe they weren't as exciting a meeting. Maybe they didn't outright tell you they want the job. Maybe they didn't, you know, get into a really deep dive conversation into the show. You know, and I understand why you would still hire them over me if, you know, for all the reasons that make hiring what hiring is. But I want that to be a tough decision. And my thought was if I if I can build a Rolodex, a database, a spreadsheet full of meetings where that was the end result, at some point, somebody's going to be like, all right, this is the right one for him. I see. So, yeah, so then it's kind of nebulous this, like, I'm going to, there to get hired versus I'm going to make sure that they can't not hire me. Because that seems like it checks more boxes. Mm-hmm. I feel like there, there's, that's clearer to me. And it's the actor's audition, right? Like, the actor's audition is, you can't, you can't audition to get the job. Like, that, if you do that, you're going to be depressed because how many jobs are you going to get? You have no control over that, you know? But what you can do, and this is from me on the other side of the table, like watching auditions, like what you, the the auditions that land are, I can tell that you had a perspective, you made a choice, you prepared and you executed on that choice. And whatever those three things were, you gave, you provided a tape that was, your best presentation of those things. And then ain't nothing else you can do about it. You know what I mean? Like we can debate, oh, like we might say, oh, well, she's, you know, the person that we've already cast for her sister, she doesn't look anything like her and it's a big stretch because that's important. And so like, no, we don't hire that person. And they may have been the best person, but you know, there's another reason why they might not have gotten a job. And so, you know, directors are auditioning in, in a similar, in, a, in somewhat of a similar way. Um, and just taking the reins and making sure like you show them what you can do, show them who you are and let them decide, but make it hard. And how do you say, I would love to take on this opportunity or is that what you say? That's what I would say, outright. So, so maybe two other people might think that, but that's too passive and they just go, okay, great. So yeah, just please keep me in mind. Like you basically let it be known. Let it be known. I want this. Because there's, and, and, you know, my estimation is that on, on this fictitious sheet of paper of names that are, that are up for something, you know, maybe one or two of them are doing it because their agent said they should. All right. And maybe... It's attractive to the people behind the show because, oh, it's so-and-so, you know, or maybe they you know, used to be so-and-so. Like, cool. But like, I'm going to come in and I'm going to, there will be no doubt, you know. Um, and in a world of meetings where folks are having 40 meetings a week, like, these things begin to stand out. And lastly, do you send a follow-up email or even a card um, I, well, it depends, you know, sometimes I have, there are a lot of relationships where 
I don't have any of these folks' information ah, because the reps set the meeting gotcha. and then you go and that's kind of how the reps remain where they remain, you know, as the conduit. Um, and then sometimes I'll have uh, folks who will, uh, yeah, folks who will like be like, oh, here's my card. And then that kind of lets you know, A, the meeting went well, but also they have a maybe different kind of relationship they're trying to build. 